Father God, we thank you for gathering us together uh, on this uh, New Year's Day. And uh, based on the uh, Romans calendar. And we knew that the, uh, the New Year's new moons established a long time ago was not based on the uh, Romans calendar. But nevertheless, it's still a Sunday. Uh, a day for us to get together to med, uh, meditate on your words and to put ourselves humbly uh, in front of you and to listen to the instruction to uh, offer our thanksgivings to you. And we know how precious it is to be uh, part of adopted uh, family. And it's not because of doing, it's because of because of your grace. And uh, you had chosen us to be the recipient that uh, so we may receive this wonderful gift, not only that we also become the co-heir of Christ uh, in your family. And we just thank you and praise you. May this coming years to be fruitful for everybody in spite of all the challenges uh, in the world, uh, in the nation. But we know that you are always with us and comfort us, protect us and give us wisdom and allow us to focus on the things you want us to focus on. So we will be able to enjoy your grace in spite of the difficult circumstances in the society. But we know that you are with us and to share the good news with uh, not just every one of us, but, you know, by opportunities. And uh, so uh, more and more may be drawn to you. We also pray for our strength and the opportunity that we may be able to share good news to others, idea, and uh, may you enable every one of us an opportunity to uh, reach out to others and uh, to enable them to uh, receive these wonderful blessings. And uh, as day is growing darker and I know your light is shining brighter, may we be your vessel to shine forth your light and uh, to comfort those around us. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lewis, so much for leading us in prayer for the throne of the Lord God in heaven and for the blessing of that. Well, we have opportunity today, and it's a great privilege to look into God's word again today as we continue on in Paul's letter to the Colossians. And I'm... Uh, able to say, as I have often, that every time I enter into preparations for the coming Sunday morning, I find myself faced with things that are written that I had not properly perhaps considered before, at least not in the details that I saw this time. And the Lord blessed me greatly in that. And you'll have the same experience as you open God's word and study it carefully and, and take it to heart. There's so much there. I'm convinced that in eternity, we will never cease learning even more and more and more continuously of what stands written in God's holy word. And, uh, there's so much there to be understood, to be believed, taken to heart. And uh, there's so much there that encourages us, that strengthens us, empowers us, and enables us to live above the affairs of this world system. And that's been our theme here for a couple of fellowships on Sunday morning living above and beyond this world system. Uh, 
two weeks ago, we looked at Paul's analogy here with clothing, taking it off and putting it on, and how the reckoning that counts makes the difference in life in all of these areas, the reckoning that counts. <laughs> I took that language, of course, from Miles Stanford's great uh, short booklet entitled, what? The Reckoning That Counts. <laughs> it's part of the uh, Green Letters. The Green Letters is a compilation of, I think it's five or maybe six different short booklets. And uh, they're published together in one book. You really need to order it and, and put it in your library. But more importantly, study it carefully because uh, certainly his writings made a great difference in our lives and I'm sure they will in years too. So that's Miles Stanford, The Green Letters. So it's the reckoning that counts that makes the difference, but you can't reckon upon uh, truth that you don't know anything about. So we have to have knowledge. And that's what Paul reveals in his letters, the knowledge. Then that needs to be reckoned upon that means taken to heart by faith uh, and then it gets applied as uh, we then offer ourselves willingly unto the work and will of god and god accomplishes his great purposes in and through us so there's this no wreck and yield uh, the language we found there in romans chapter six uh Wonderful, wonderful teaching about how to be delivered from the power of sin in this life. So what we learned also was that Christ now has a life after his resurrection, after his ascension into glory. Uh, he now lives in a new way, than he, different way than he did before. Before it was in reference to our sins. And now it's in reference to a new life. And we are to emulate him in that with our minds set on the same, okay, on life and uh, it abundantly. That's what's available to us today. So uh, what we focused on last uh, time we looked into Colossians was how the truth <clears throat> that needs to be reckoned upon is what's been accomplished by Christ in his sacrifice of himself paying the full penalty for all of our sins his righteousness then being uh, accounted to us placed on our uh, on our <laughs> book as it were so we are declared righteous in and through him right uh, and uh, then uh, once that has been accomplished we are encouraged to live above this world and its demands by the power of God, by the power of God working within us. And so Paul uses this uh, clothing analogy. He says, yes, you have already put off the old man, Colossians 3, 9. You have already put off the old man with his deeds. But the previous verse, Colossians 3, 8 says, now you should put off all of these. And he makes the long list. Anger, wrath, this is the works of the flesh, right? So you, you have already put off the old man. In fact, that's how God and the, our Father and the Lord Jesus sees us now as having been delivered entirely from that that went back to Adam, right? So that's Adamic sin guilt. It's already gone. It's been canceled. And what's in its place is the very righteousness of Christ and specifically his righteousness in paying for not his sins but ours so uh, our sins have already been paid for in full and now we've been declared uh, to be righteous in that sense uh, by the Lord God right and therefore we are to live accordingly so he says put off all of these and then he says you need to put on. <laughs> so we put off all of that. And then the next of the next step is to put on that which is in accordance with uh, 
this new life in Christ Jesus, right? And that was in Colossians 3, verses 10 through 14. Uh, and we're going to read uh, read uh, some of that again in a moment, so I won't read it now. But uh, what a blessing it is to have this precious word of truth. What a blessing. God's grace is so wonderful. It's so encouraging. It's so positive. It's so empowering. If only we would take it to heart by faith, reckoning upon its truth and the power, really, of what God is doing today under grace. What is it that teaches us to uh, give up ungodliness and worldly lust? It is the grace of God that has been revealed. It is that that teaches us, according to Titus chapter 2. Okay, so our outline today is simple enough, um, and we won't get through the whole thing. I wish we could. We'll only get through half of it. This is all about the reckoning that counts and how it makes all the difference in living, even when it's hard. It makes all the difference in living, even when it's hard. And for that, we need to look at all these different dimensions. First of all, it makes all the difference in living. For that is the heart of spirituality. The heart of spirituality is in the reckoning that counts. That's the the way we access the power of God under grace, okay? You can't access it by keeping law and therefore producing legal works. That is uh, uh, not ever going to work because that encourages the, the sin nature and only judgment comes. Okay, so it's only by reckoning uh, upon what God has already accomplished, that uh, the power of grace can operate. So that is at the heart of true spirituality. That's the first thing we'll consider this morning. Secondly, we'll look at what that teaching is, what that teaching is. We'll read all of the verses that I've assigned. And then thirdly, we'll look at the first part of this, which has to do with our private lives. It transforms our private lives. In other words, The reckoning that counts makes all the difference in living. Even when it's hard, it transforms our private lives. Next time, we'll see how it also transforms our prayer lives and then how it transforms our public lives. We'll look at that next time, our prayer life and our public life and how they've been transformed as well uh, in the plan of God for us living in the dispensation of God's abundant grace. Okay, so first of all, then, the heart of true spirituality, where is that? Well, uh, let's find out. We already looked at it last, uh, well, several weeks ago, but I'd like us to read these verses again now, and I'd like, Gail, if you'd read these verses for us, please, and they're most wonderful, most wonderful Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against even, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to the which also you were called in one body and be you thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Thank you, Gail. So there we see what the heart of true spirituality, the essence of our spirituality is. Uh, It is exactly in what's written there. Notice uh, it's all about what what God is doing and what he's already accomplished and what he still wants to do, right? It's about what the Lord God 
is doing under grace. We're called the elect of God there in verse 12. What a wonderful way to describe the saints of God, those called out by him. He calls us holy and beloved. And then he he talks about uh, uh, what should come forth, what kind of fruit. This is the fruit of the Spirit, right? What kind of fruit should be born uh, in our lives? Bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another, even if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. So it's not that you forgive others in order for Christ to forgive you. It's that Christ already forgave you by his amazing grace, right? And therefore we also should forgive others. And then he mentions love. He calls it the bond of perfectness. It's sort of like what ties everything together in the plan of God today is love. Uh, and that's why it's mentioned first in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, love, joy, peace, long, and so forth. Galatians chapter 5. Then he says, let the peace of God rule. The peace of God, not the fear of God. Uh but the peace of God, let it rule in your heart. We're already in a peaceful relationship with the Lord God because uh, the treaty was signed, right? The payment was made. Uh, we are now uh, accepted in the beloved, right? Uh, he says here, to which also you are called in one body and be ye thankful. Thanksgiving is grace receiving. And so the next verse says, um, let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. It may not be open. Others may not hear it. They should see it, but they may not hear it because if you're singing in your heart, you may not have words that are audible, but sometimes absolutely, right? Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And then this wonderful summary statement of the entire Christian life. Whatsoever you do, in word or deed, keeping every point of the law, no, that's not even in mind here. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So he starts with thanksgiving, grace is in the middle of it all, tying it together, and he ends with thanksgiving here in verse 17. Now there's a parallel passage in Ephesians, and what we're going to be looking at today is a number of parallel passages, because the Colossians letter, when it gets down to the practicalities of daily living, is very short and very succinct. It's kind of abbreviated, it seems, when you read it in comparison with what's written in Ephesians. Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians apparently at the same time. You may have either gone back and forth between them as he wrote them. Same themes often, sometimes same language, sometimes slightly different language, sometimes a different emphasis, some different wording. Uh, I think based upon different circumstances in the churches and in these fellowships, probably. But uh, uh, Paul is uh, writing uh, about the same subject in both of these letters. And uh, yet Ephesians is much more in detail most of the time. And so when we read the Ephesians parallel passage in parallel to what we just read in Colossians, this is in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verses 15 through 20. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. In Colossians, we'll look at it next time, but in Colossians, Paul also says we should redeem the time. But that's at the end of the exhortation. Here it's at the beginning, right? Um Redeeming the time because the days are evil. <clears throat> Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the 
spirit speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) Then he mentions submission, verse 21, a general exhortation, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Fear, of course, used in the sense of great uh, humbleness before the Lord God, recognizing his sovereignty over all things. And um, fear, honor, worship of the Lord God as he truly is sovereign over all. So submitting. um, What is that referring back to? It's referring back to walking in the spirit and what he calls here um, being filled with the spirit, right? Redeeming the time, knowing the will of God, walking circumspectly, redeeming the time. All, All these things in the realm of thanksgiving for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. And then submitting. So it's in that context. Submitting outside of that context is a legal work. Okay, don't forget that. So Thanksgiving is grace receiving. The new life of Christ in us, who is the hope of glory, you remember, right? Flows, that new life flows like an artesian well. It brings forth songs of grace in the heart. And of course, in the night, I remember songs in the night (laughs) program going on i think still but forever it seems on the radio right and i could give a personal testimony about how much of an encouragement that was to me at one time but i won't give you that uh, now maybe another time songs in the night okay so this Word of Christ is to dwell. That means to settle down and feel at home in. (laughs) Um, It's to settle down and to feel at home in our hearts with all of the results that we read about here. And we've learned, I hope you remember from our previous study here in Colossians, that that's only possible if we reckon upon what we know of Christ's completed work, and then in daily living, even when the going gets tough, bear forth the fruit of the Spirit. If the going isn't tough, I mean, you know, hey, but when it does get tough, when all human resources are expended and uh, all hope humanly seems lost and no longer available, then where do we turn? Do we rejoice in the Lord then and bear forth his fruit? Well, Paul says we're enabled to, and he tells us exactly how that can be the reality in our lives, even in the hard times. And Paul's going to write about hard times now, uh, as well as glorious, blessed times in the rest of this section. Okay? where he talks about clothing, taking it off, putting it on, right? He says we must put off the old ways of the old man and put on the new life of the new man that God is working to to transform us into one step at a time. And this is all when and only when the word of Christ is dwelling in our hearts. So what a precious teaching today. That brings us to the Part of the teaching. Let's read the verses uh, together. Now we're down to the teaching itself. What is it in detail? Dana, would you please read for us Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. 
Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Thank you very much, Dina. And Linda, would you read the rest of the chapter, please, verses 23 through 25. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Thank you, Linda. And Lydia, if you'd read the first verses in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, please. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, without praying also for us, that God will open unto us a door of utterance to speak to the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it and manifest as I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward them that are without redeeming the time. Thank you, Lydia. Very, very good. Okay, so uh, as I said, we don't have time today to look at these uh, last verses, but we'll certainly do that next time, Lord willing. So that brings us down to some detailed teaching here, and uh, sorry we'll go kind of long today, but uh, Paul writes very much in detail here and in the parallel passages in the Ephesians letter concerning our private lives. Okay, This is all about our private lives. Now, it's also in a context, and I, I uh, want to explain what that context is, because Paul is going to be talking about something that uh, today we have a very uh, uh, sort of <laughs> uh, reformed view of, you might say, since uh, the laws of the land have changed so greatly over the centuries. But in Paul's day, uh, there were a number of things that were the case, uh, and some of them are, many of them are still the same today, but other things are quite different. So, for example, uh, the assemblies met together in those days, uh, nearly always, if not always, in private homes. And that's still true throughout the world today. Most assemblies of believers are in private homes. And uh, if you don't know that, uh, <laughs> you're kind of missing out on, on a lot of what God is doing, right? Um, buildings that were designed, designated as, quote, churches uh, was a late addition uh, by organized religion, but not initially uh, a reality. So assemblies met in private homes. Like here in Colossae, and Paul's writing to a group in Colossae, which he calls a church, right, an assembly, He's writing to the church in Colossae, and it meets in a private home. Uh, we can be pretty sure of that, and there are a couple of ways you can see that. One is that he mentions one of the members of that private home in uh, verse 15 of chapter 4. His name is Nymphos. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, let me start over. I sort of misspoke, but uh, he mentions in Colossae, that there's an assembly meeting in the home of a man named Lymphus in Laodicea, okay, which is not far from Colossae. And in fact, uh, also he mentions the name of a person uh, here in chapter four, and that name is Onesimus. Hmm, Onesimus the central character in Paul's letter to Philemon. Onesimus was a slave who had uh, run away from his master. His master was named Philemon. And uh, 
Onesimus as the slave had run away and actually had stolen something quite valuable as well. And then he uh, found himself in Roman, in, in, in the Roman world, uh, in fact, in the Roman capital, Rome itself, where he met up with Paul. And much of that history is not written anywhere, but uh, certainly Paul is referencing some of it there in his letter to Philemon. Philemon is the slave owner. Onesimus is mentioned here in this letter as being of that assembly in Colossae. Therefore, we can easily conclude, and I believe it's correct, that the church in Colossae met in the home of Philemon. Uh, It's only logical that that is the case. Okay, so uh, what about that? Assemblies met in private homes. Here uh, it's meeting in the home of a gentleman, and we think it's Philemon. And there are even slaves present. Hmm. Um, If you're meeting in a private home, certain things are going to be visible to all. One is the relationship between the husband and the wife, (laughs) between um, the parents and their children, uh, and the relationships between slave owners and slaves to be visible to all. And that is Paul's focus here. Of course, he writes in a general sense so that the teaching can be applied uh, to all members of the body everywhere, right? But that's the background of what he writes here, and it's a beautiful thing to see. Now, the first uh, thing, though, that he addresses is the wives. That's interesting, huh? Verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. That's all. He doesn't explain it. He doesn't go into details. He just leaves it at that. It's kind of abbreviated, it seems to me. Very short. If you weren't there, you might have some questions as to what this all signifies. Right. I mean, why did he single out the wives right off like this? Uh, In Ephesians, in the parallel section, he says much more. (laughs) In fact, he explains the whole teaching in Ephesians chapter five, verse 22. He says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And so we see here that God has established this hierarchy. In previous teaching, we focused a lot on the hierarchy that God has established in the creation and certainly in humankind, uh, and then in marriage in particular, and children and so forth. Uh, there's a hierarchy that God has established, and it, it, it speaks to both authority and, not that alone, but responsibility. So here he says, wives are to submit to their husbands. In Colossians, he then simply says, as is fit in the Lord. In other words, in this realm whereby we are the children of uh, of God, right, under grace, uh, it's appropriate, he says, for the wives to submit to their husbands in that re- realm in which we live. It seems like it's implied, though we can't be so sure, that the husbands are assumed to be believers here. And I think in many cases that was true, Certainly in this case, with Philemon, it was certainly true. Um, But sometimes it is not true, and that leads to all kinds of uh, circumstances of difficulty, potentially, right? But, Paul, by the way, I should say, in the notes, you'll find a lot more detail than what I'm able to share here today. Please look at the notes. They'll be put online on libertymessenger.org within a day or so at the most. But uh, let me just say this, this hierarchy of authority and responsibility that he mentions here is made uh, even 
clearer, uh, as I already showed you there in Ephesians. And you see that Paul sees the marriage relationship for believers in the light of the plan of God and, and how God has ordained in the creation and certainly amongst humanity for he himself and his uh, beloved son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to be at the very top, right? Uh, and he mentions here specifically, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body, meaning Christ of the body. And so he's likening that relationship to the husband with the wife, right? So the husband has great responsibility, therefore, regarding his wife. And uh, in ancient culture, women often were independent, but uh, in most cases, they had no, no, um, uh, no place in society uh, apart from in the marriage relationship, right? And so they couldn't just say, well, I'm tired of this relationship and we'll get a divorce and go off and live on our own. That was uh, usually not possible. Okay, so Paul in verse 24 of Ephesians 5 makes a very strong statement. He says, therefore, if the church is subject unto Christ, so let their wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Okay. Now, we all know that uh, circumstances between husbands and wives are never perfect and sometimes so imperfect that uh, the wife often, sometimes the husband, is in an extremely uh, difficult circumstance. There's also abuse of many kinds sometimes caused by just a uh, uh, lack of knowledge of how to live responsibly in the marriage bond. Other times it's due to addictions of one kind or another. Uh, sin often rules rather than the word of grace. And so things are not perfect in the marriage relationships in this world and certainly not in the body of Christ either, okay? And the Lord hasn't promised that, but he has promised many things, and even in this section we're looking at, okay? So that's his exhortation for wives. He says, consider the spiritual realities of the marriage bond carefully. Otherwise, the marriage may be broken, uh, and it may not be easily fixed. And uh, that would be contrary to the will of God and contrary to the work of God, where he wants to use marriage relationships uh, to represent the relationship between Christ and the church. And for all those in difficult circumstances in marriage, remember this. This life is a preparation for eternity. Okay. Now he goes directly on to husbands. And again, in Colossians, it's a very abbreviated statement. He says, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Hmm. In other words, things aren't perfect from the husband's point of view. The husband may be bitter, maybe for wrong reasons <laughs> entirely, right? Maybe the wife isn't submitting fully. But he says, be not bitter against them. And in Ephesians, in the parallel passage, he gives the whole teaching. And I have to read it. It's a wonderful thing indeed. Because husbands bear the greatest responsibility of all. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) In Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands. Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. 
So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So when Paul is writing about the responsibility of husbands toward their wives, he can't help himself, but feels he must actually be giving the teaching about how the body of Christ and its individual members are under the domain, as it were, if we want to use the word, of Christ himself sacrificed everything for the church, as he says here. And he loved the church, gave himself for it, and uh, brought it into being as a wonderful thing. And so men have these responsibilities as believers uh, for their wives. It's in this physical realm, yes, he mentions that. It's also in the spiritual realm, and that's really, I think, where the even greater focus is here. That he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives. So be it. That is God's word for husbands. And in verse 33, he adds something. Verse 33 in Ephesians 5. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. And then he adds, and this is not in the Colossians uh, teaching because it's an abbreviated teaching there. He adds, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So I believe the key to marriage <laughs> problems is right here in the one verse, with all the verses around it providing depth of teaching. But in this one verse, husbands are to love their wives. Wives, it says, are to reverence, respect fully their husbands. And when marriages break down, it's often that the husband isn't properly loving his wife or or also, perhaps, the wife is not respecting her husband. If marriage counselors would focus on their counseling with this teaching in mind, they would have more success. They rarely do, it seems to me. That's the key to the marriage relationship. Okay, Paul then goes quickly to the children, and I'm not going to spend much time with it, and then to the slaves, well, to the fathers, and then the slaves. Regarding the children, he simply says, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. In the Ephesians parallel passage, he says the same, but he he uh, even goes back to the Mosaic law, and he says, well, back there under the law, you were to honor your father and mother if you were the children, right? And God promised that it would then be very well with you and you would live long on the land. <laughs> but the uh, contrary is also true. If you did not honor your father and mother, you'd suffer judgment under law. But Paul goes back there, I think, because uh, of the uh, the way that that children are obligated. They're totally dependent on their parents, for one thing. Only when they're much older are they not, right? But they're totally dependent, and God has prepared a place for them. And uh, Christian parents certainly need to respect properly and love their parents. Otherwise, they miss out on all the blessings, right? And we see in our culture today how those principles have completely broken down. 
Fathers, it says, verse 21 in Colossians 3, fathers should not provoke their children to anger lest they be discouraged. That's interesting. In Ephesians, in the parallel verse, he says, fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but, and very positively, bring them up in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. Okay, so... Praise God for a godly father that recognizes it's very possible because of his lordship, as it were, over the children, for him to abuse that relationship and not be thinking of nurture, which is something he might think his wife is better able to do. But it says here, fathers also have that responsibility as believers regarding their children. That means discipline should be of a godly sort with uh, appropriate goals and not uh, ever carried out in any other way. So there's much exhortation here. Now he goes on to mention the the slaves. Uh, I already mentioned them before, so I don't have to say much now. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 through 25, Paul says that servants, that's a rather uh, 1611 uh, view of slavery when uh, slavery was often in the churches entirely opposed, right? Even though it was still the law of the land. But um, slavery was not considered in the Christian community to be a good thing. And uh, so (laughs) here the word Slave or bond slave is translated servant. (laughs) Servants, or really bond slaves, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For ye serve the Lord Christ, but he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Very interesting that uh, Paul does not give an abbreviated exhortation there, like he does regarding these other very, uh, very important uh, relationships in life. He's very detailed here in Colossians, and that's again why I think This is the church uh, meeting in Philemon's house where they've had an issue with a slave named uh, Onesimus who has been brought to the Lord and uh, is now a valued member of the fellowship. But there may be other slaves still remaining. And uh, Paul says to them, you need to consider who you ultimately serve. It is not, in fact, ultimately the slave owner, but it is the Lord God himself. So he says, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. And there'll be a working out. Remember, at the judgment seat of Christ, uh, everything gets worked out and uh, rewards are given when rewards are due. Otherwise, one has lost uh, it all and no reward will be forthcoming. Okay, uh, what Paul writes in Ephesians is not any different than what he writes in Colossians. No more detail, no less. Really the same thing. Okay, one quick comment. Slavery was real in the ancient world. Under Roman law, slavery saw the slave as a piece of private property, okay? Private property. In the Roman law, there was a distinction very clearly between what was private and what was not private. Okay? Private property included slaves under Roman law. And uh, it's just a fact. Slaves owned nothing and couldn't own nothing themselves, they themselves were property. So stealing was very common for slaves. It was sort of the acceptable way of life, steal what you could. But for believers, Paul says, no, it is absolutely not acceptable. Okay? Now, that's not the end of the story. Many slaves 
had owners that were believers, as in the case of Philemon. And so Paul writes in Colossians 4.1, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. And it's essentially the same exhortation in Ephesians 6.9. So praise God, the master-slave relationship, though it was set in Roman law, does not in a Christian family dominate what does dominate is the grace of christ what a wonderful thing it's no wonder that over the centuries uh, the christian theology transformed everything in many parts of the world next time we'll continue to see how the reckoning accounts even transforms our prayer lives and our public lives Praise God, though. Uh, grace works. And we see that here reveals, I hope, so clearly. Let us take it to heart. Let it transform our lives. And in all relationships, private, in homes and public, may the grace of Christ be manifested. Amen. Amen. Enjoy the Lord, all. Any questions before we close today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for gathering us today. Uh, it's a blessing to have the truth that's on your heart, Heavenly Father, be brought to ours through the words of the Apostle Paul. Thank you so much for his willingness to sacrifice everything to bring this word to the assemblies, to the believers in that world uh, and in your marvelous plan down through the ages, ultimately to us through reliable translations and through those that would study and learn and then teach others. So, Father, thank you so much. We stand on the shoulders of so many indeed. Thank you for opening the word to us today. I pray, Father, that it would be a great blessing to us uh, when even times are difficult. It's especially there that we need to draw upon the power of your grace. But Father, at all times, may we be thankful. And may we be thankful for everything. And if we are not, Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd remind us, that you'd remind us that we might then offer up to you thanksgiving for all that you are, all that you've done, all this has been accomplished through our precious Savior and all that you're still doing today under grace. And we would thank you, Father, unceasingly, in Christ's name and amen.